0: Hey guys, I'm sure you remember that uh, kid's story. Your parents probably read to you, the little engine that could, remember? Uh, The happy locomotive is taking the toys to the children and can't get up over the mountain and breaks down. And what are we gonna do? We gotta get the toys to the kids. So then the pompous passenger engine comes along, considers himself too grand for the task. The powerful freight engine views himself as too important for the task. The elderly engine lacks either the strength or the determination to help the kids get the toys. And so then the little blue engine always appears at the end of the story. And although perhaps reluctant at first, she always rises to the occasion and saves the day for the children and takes the toys over the mountains saying, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. And ends with, I thought I could, I thought I could, I thought I could, I thought I could. It's not the the moral of the story, of course. It's not the strongest who make the difference. It's the ones who believe, who are available, who endure, who persevere, who keep pushing forward. In a lot of ways, the book of Revelation is a lot like the little engine that could. It's the little church that could. It's the seven churches that we met in the book of Revelation, and they're chugging along, but it's an uphill climb in their culture. And we feel that ourselves sometimes in our culture and maybe even in your personal life. Can I keep going in the midst of my chaos, in the midst of the chaos of planet Earth, then 2,000 years ago and now, what am I supposed to do? What are the people of God supposed to be doing? Can we really make any difference? We seem outnumbered. The odds are stacked against us. There are so many obstacles, and there seems no way forward. That's how they felt in the first century, and yet somehow they turned it around, and they turned the world upside down. They made this incredible impact that we feel today 2,000 years later. How did that happen? How did this tiny minority of believers in Jesus just trying to follow Jesus in the midst of a vast empire of pagan worshipers and fierce and hostile emperors and rulers against them? How did they make a difference? That's what I ask today to you and to us. How do the few influence the many? When we feel so outnumbered, when we feel like the odds are stacked against us, how do we overcome now, last weekend Pastor Brandon took us through Revelation 8 and 9 and we get these uh, seven trumpets actually for six trumpets and the seven awaits right uh, and and this chaos happens on planet earth but the question then arises and the apostle John then pauses the story in chapter 10 and 11 to give us the vision that Jesus gave to him to pause for just a moment and to think about, okay, what are we supposed to doing in the midst of the hardships, the suffering, the difficulties, the uphill climb that we experience in this world? And some of this relates to stuff that happens in the end times. I mean, the last, last days, but we've said all along, we're not making up timelines to try to chart this out and predict when it's going to happen. Rather, yes, this is to happen, but we're also learning the biblical principles the timeless truths that come from these, uh, these images and these visions. So today we're going to do that. And to get us started, uh, we're going to look at five scenes today from the Word of God. And to get us started, I want you to listen to scene one from Revelation chapter 10. And our good friend Randall Watt is going to give us the word today.
1: Then I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. His face was like the sun. His legs were like pillars of fire, and he held a little scroll opened in his hand. He put his right foot on the sea, his left on the land, and he called out with a loud voice like a roaring lion. When he cried out, the seven thunders raised their voices, and when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders said, and do not write it down. Then the angel that I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven. He swore by the one who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it. There will no longer be a delay. But in the days when the seventh angel will blow his trumpet, then the mystery of God will be completed as he announced to his servants the prophets.
0: Okay, so you see this incredible vision. I saw another mighty angel, this giant angel with one pillar of fire leg on land and the other pillar of fire leg on sea, and uh, it's just amazing, and the little scroll is in his hand. The mighty angel is magnificent, majestic, intimidating, glorious, one foot on land, one on sea. And the little scroll, the message, the plan of God about to be revealed in his open hand. And then here's hears the seven thunders. ah, oh, the seven thunders. And he's about to write down what the seven thunders, John's about to write them down. And then God says, seal it up. Don't tell anybody about that. That's between you and me. So we got seven seals open. We got seven trumpets that get blared. We're about to break, uh, uh, pour out seven bowls. So we got those seven, but then there's seven thunders and we're told, nah, you don't get to hear that. That's a secret. He tells John, that's for me and for you to know only. We're sealing that up. What, What does this all mean? Deuteronomy said it this way, the secret things belong to the Lord There are certain things that God is not going to reveal to us in our lives and even about the last, last days. And in a way, it's comforting because the truth of the matter is, you know, all this is going on in your life, in your personal life. And you think you've got to know it all. You think you've got to have the plan of God all laid out for you. You think you've got to figure it out and then you can control it, right? And God is saying, well, guess what? I'm not going to tell you everything. You're not going to know everything so you don't have to worry about controlling it because there's no way you possibly could. I withhold some of that from you because I'm getting control. It says, you don't have to know everything. In fact, you won't know everything. Verse 5, then the angel that I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven. He swore by the one who lives forever and ever who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, the sea and what is in it, there will no longer be a delay. When God says, time's up, then time's up. And he says, in the days when the seventh angel will blow his trumpet, when that day comes on those last last days, then the mystery of God will be completed, accomplished, fulfilled, as he announced to his servants, the prophets. What we're learning here is there's coming a day when God wraps it all up. When the gospel has gone forth to every tribe, language, people, and nation. When everyone has an opportunity to hear about the the incredible love of God as he gave up his beloved son for us and for our sins and how he died for our sins and rose again to defeat hell and sin and death everybody's had that opportunity and then God decides it's time to end this part of his story not the end of everything but the end of that chapter and what strikes you in all these visions is how completely in control God is there's a mighty angel. He's got solid, God's got a solid, unchangeable plan in the scroll. He's doing his work. He's bringing it all together, guys, in his own way, in his own timing. He's not spiraling out of control. He's not freaking out. He's not wringing his hands. What am I going to do? So how are you going to make a difference in this world? How can you overcome the odds? How can you go move forward when you feel outnumbered or just overwhelmed? As an example at your workplace, or in the school or the neighborhood? How in this society do you build lasting relationships? Raise a family, maintain your integrity, not lose your cool, not get swallowed alive by temptations, the nastiness, the fighting, the struggles, the hardships. How do you live as a witness to those around you? How do you truly influence your circle of family and friends? Even when you feel all alone and outnumbered, and that no one will listen, and there's no way forward. How do we, the few, influence the many? Here's the first principle. We gotta be absolutely confident that God reigns. There's a mighty angel, and there's a scroll, and there's a plan, and we don't have to know all the plan. And we get to use our sanctified imagination to bring to mind this vision of the mighty angel straddling over land and sea, wrapped in a cloud, face like the sun, legs like pillars of fire, scroll of God in his hand, and the voice of God reassuring you, the mystery of God, the invisible plan of God will be accomplished. God will keep his word. God will fulfill his purposes in your life and on this earth. So if you and I are gonna have any influence in this world at all and make any difference, we have to trust that God reigns and is in control. you got to believe that God has it covered, God has you covered, and he's got a plan. And there are no gaps in the plan. It hadn't all been revealed, but there's no gaps. And we can't know the full plan of God. We don't need to know the full plan of God. We just need to know the Lord of the plan. Bob Goff put it this way. Great speaker from coming up soon at our uh, Good for All conference. He said it this way. Check it out. Courage isn't the absence of fear. It's deciding that fear isn't calling the shots anymore. I love that. Absolutely true. By the way, get signed up for Good for All 2022. You know, it's going to be amazing, guys. You do not want to miss this opportunity. All right, keep going. Let's listen to scene two of the word of God.
1: Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, go. Go. Take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take and eat it. It will be bitter in your stomach, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. Then I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It was as sweet as honey in the mouth, but when I ate it, my stomach became bitter. And they said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings.
0: Now John in this passage, the apostle John gets a commission, or I might call a recommission. He had a call, now he gets a recall to, uh, to follow Jesus, to, to keep going strong in this hard time. And so it says the voice of God, so go take the scroll. Verse 9, so I went to the angel, I asked him, give me the little scroll. He said, take it and eat, it'll be bitter in your stomach, but it'll be sweet as honey in your mouth. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand, I ate it, sweet as honey in my mouth, but in my stomach turned bitter. Then he said to me, you must prophesy. That's not predict the future so much as it is. Give forth, speak forth the word of God about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings so john gets a recommission he might have been a little reluctant i mean things were coming down and he's talking about the last last days and we sometimes feel that in our last days these last days not the last last days but our these last days okay how do we the few influence the many here's the second principle we got to be like john all in for god's message he said john you got to take this in you got to eat this you got to swallow this it's going to be sweet it's going to turn bitter in your stomach now, there's a lot of different ways to understand that. But what I understand it to mean for us and for John is that we got to take in the word of God. We feed on the word of God. We allow it to shape and mold and perfect us from the inside out. We get off of our news feeds and our social media and our websites long enough to eat the scroll of God. This was, Ezekiel was given the same commands and now John is. And now we are. And when you do, there are going to be some sweet parts in your mouth. And there are going to be some bitter parts. There are going to be the sweetness of victories and promises and grace and love and compassion and God's forgiveness through the cross of Jesus Christ. The sweetness of the resurrection, the gospel. But then there's also the bitter truths, the harsh realities, the call to repent and to turn away from evil, the justice against evil the eternity that is at stake, the incredibly sobering consequences for those who reject the love of God. That's bitter. And so what John, what he's saying to John and what he's saying to us is we gotta be all in for the message, all in for both the sweet and the bitter, the bitter and the sweet. We we cannot exist, and neither can our culture, on nothing but sweets. So we take it and we communicate the whole message of the scriptures. Can you imagine parenting a child and all you ever did was feed them sweet things? Can you imagine parenting a child and all you ever did was tell them sweet things? There was never any correction. There was never any hard things that had to be told. Of course not. In fact, any kind of deep relationship with a friend, with a family, with a neighbor, with a coworker involves the sweet and the bitter guys that's just life it's fundamentally unfair and unkind to only tell the sweet stuff because we need both and that's how the few influence the many we mix it up just the right way with both the sweet and the bitter and it's hard sometimes to to speak forth and even to take in that bitter but the question is are you all in And maybe you and I need today a recommissioning to believe the whole scripture, not just the fun parts, not just the sweet parts, but all of scripture and say, here I stand. Let's listen to scene three of the word of God today.
1: Then I was given a measuring reed like a rod with these words, go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count those who worship there, but exclude the courtyard outside the temple don't measure it, because it is given to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. I will grant my two witnesses authority to prophecy for 1,260 days, dressed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth.
0: Okay, guys, so there is a lot going on in that passage, and it reminds me of kind of math equations, you know? It's like... Wow. How will I ever figure all of this out? But we're going to keep it simple. We're going to go to this equation. Okay. We got that one. Yeah, here we go. So we're going to keep it simple. Remember we said the main things are the plain things and the plain things are the main things. Yeah. So uh, we're not going to cover all of this today. But uh, let me go quickly through this. In verse 11, he says, I've given a measuring reed like a rod, go measure the temple of God, the altar, count those worship there. So the temple, what is this? Who, which temple is he going to? He's on Patmos, remember? The island he's far from Jerusalem. Or is this the heavenly temple? Or is this some temple that's yet to come in the future that will be rebuilt in Jerusalem in the last, last days? Or is this the people of God, just as symbolically? We're called the temple of the Holy Spirit. We're called the place where God dwells, his temple. And there's several temples of varying descriptions, even within the book of Revelation. So which temple is he talking about? Hmm. Come to digging deeper. We'll talk about it there, okay? But in any case, no matter which one it is, the temple represents the presence of God among his people. And there's a measuring. And the measuring is to protect the true worshipers. Count them up. And God is saying, I've measured it, these are mine. These belong to me. Just like a surveyor, you survey the land, and this land belongs to me. That's what God's doing. He says, these belong to me. I've counted them all, and I'm not going to lose a single one of them. But he says in verse 2, exclude the courtyard outside the temple. That's living in the real world. Don't measure it, because it is given to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Now, this likely refers to some stuff that goes down in the last, last days. But it also is just a, a principle for us to take in that there's going to be a lot of trouble and hardship and difficulty and opposition and persecution. And then you get these numbers that come out, 42 months, 1260 days, three and a half years. What are all those all about? Well, they're all the same. Those, those numbers are all the same by the Hebrew reckoning. And they, they stand, and we'll cover this in digging deeper, but they, they stand for a limited time of great difficulty when God's people are called to be faithful it's not gonna last forever but we're gonna we're called to be faithful during that short period of time and during digging deeper I'll unpack all the reasons why that particular number 42 months 12 60 days three and a half years are chosen but it's it's symbolic and it happens over and over again in the scriptures. So come to digging deeper. We're going to have the next one's going to be uh, on August 15th. We're going to cover Revelation chapter 8 through 12. So we're going to cover a lot of territory of some of these um, some more confusing symbols. But you got the main idea. God's measuring you out. He says, I got you covered. I'm going to keep you eternally safe. But it's going to be difficult in the world. They're going to trample on you. The main thing is the plain thing. And so what I'm learning here from this little passage is the people of God are on the one hand, absolutely invincible. Nothing can ultimately conquer us. And on the other hand, the people of God are very vulnerable and they're going to experience persecution, hardship, and suffering in this life. In 2 Corinthians, the apostle Paul stated what this vision communicated in images he put in words. Just listen to it, would you? We now have this light shining in our hearts, but we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. This makes it clear that our great power is from God, not from ourselves. We are pressed on every side by troubles, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are hunted down, but never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we're not destroyed. Through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be seen in our bodies. Yes, we live under the constant danger of death because we serve Jesus so that the life of Jesus will be evident in our dying bodies. So we live in the face of death, but this has resulted in eternal life for you. Oh my guys, that's good stuff. And that's, that's telling us the bitter, the sweet, the living and protection, the suffering and the hardship. It's all there. And then he goes on to say something that he does with these two witnesses. He says in verse three, I'll grant my two witnesses authority to prophesy three and a half years, 1260 days, dressed in sackcloth. These two witnesses are going to uh, bring a message of repentance and faith. And these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Okay, here's some symbolism here. Okay, we're not, we're going to cover this more in digging deeper, but essentially two witnesses, which take a long time to explain, but almost certainly represent either literally Elijah and Moses. And they appeared with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, and they actually come back in the last, last days, or some figures who are like Elijah and Moses in the last, last days. I, I, I think that's, Uh, clear um but come to digging deeper if you want to understand more of that but in those last last days they prophesy a message of repentance and faith and he says he then says there's two olive trees and two lampstands I don't know if it just refers back to these two witnesses and by the way we're supposed to be these witnesses too that's the timeless truth we're supposed to be faithful witnesses just like they will be in the last last days we are now okay So then you get the two olive trees and the two lampstands. We got, I think, a picture, uh, kind of a portrait of that. And this is a very vivid imagery, actually from Zechariah chapter four. Again, digging deeper, I keep saying that, but basically the original context is that the Zerubbabel, the governor, and Joshua, the high priest, are going to come together and God's going to empower them. The olive trees stand for the oil of the Holy Spirit being poured into them. And they're these lampstands that shine brightly for Jesus. That was the original context way back in the Old Testament. And then it gets brought forward to us. And we don't know exactly, is this referring to Elijah and Moses, those last, last days prophets, or is it referring to something that was happening in the first century, like Peter and Paul? Maybe it's the two churches of the seven that were the most faithful. Those would be Smyrna and Philadelphia. Or maybe it's just symbolic of of just being the church. The whole church is to be this picture of the two olive trees and the two lampstands and the two witnesses. Hard to know all those things. But the the timeless truth that comes through is we're going to shine. And they, in those last, last days, are going to shine like the lamps in the darkness And they are going to be empowered by a living supply of the Holy Spirit pouring the oil of the Holy Spirit into their hearts and souls because they need his power. It's hard to walk. And this is how these witnesses, how we as witnesses influence. How do the few influence the many? Principle number three, we bravely serve in God's power. We bravely serve in God's power. We don't run away. We stand up and we keep serving. But we don't do it in our own power. We're going to get burned out otherwise real quick. But with God's supply, day by day, we can do it. The people who make a difference in this world have two things that are in very short supply in 2022. They bravely serve. They have courage. And they have a willingness and availability to serve. They're willing to get their hands dirty and they're not afraid. Or if they are afraid, they're just not letting fear call the shots. Courage. Somebody said the bad times are the best times to share the good news. I 100% believe that. And that's what we're seeing here. And that's what we're seeing in our lives. When, when you have difficulties surrounding you, those are the times to rely on on God's spirit and God's power and continue to bravely serve and can I just say to you can I ask you are you in the game are you serving God are you serving the mission of the church you know the few who influence the many are the few who say you know what put me in I want to be a part of the action and maybe over the last couple of years uh, you've kind of dropped out of that in terms of volunteering or serving or just following Jesus in a way that s- serves, the, doing the hard things, and maybe just telling your story even, or helping kids in a Sunday school class or you know, serving at a community outreach event. You say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get involved. I'm going to throw myself in there into the mix of the mess, and I'm willing, and it can be whatever you're good at. Whatever however, God's spirit has empowered you, but you're still there. You're bravely serving. So if that's kind of slid to the back burner, can I, can I just encourage you to bring it out to the front burner and say, okay, I'm in. I'm in. Let's listen to the word of God again from scene four. If
1: anyone wants to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and consumes their enemies. If anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. They have authority to close up the sky so that it does not rain during the days of their prophecy. They also have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague whenever they want. When they finish their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war on them, conquer them, and kill them. Their dead bodies will lie in the main street of the great city, which figuratively is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. And some of the peoples, tribes, languages, and nations will view their bodies for three and a half days and not permit their bodies to be put into a tomb. Those who live on the earth will gloat over them and celebrate and send gifts to one another because these two prophets had tormented those who live on earth. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them And they stood on their feet. Great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. They went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies watched them.
0: Now, guys, what I think what has been envisioned here in a very highly symbolic language are people who have an incredibly powerful impact on the people around them. It likely refers to those last, last days, but the principles are the same for our days. Uh, You get in verse 5 and 6, this incredible power that these witnesses display, and they're highly symbolic language, and God has a protection around them, and they're able to do amazing things with their message, so they bravely serve in God's power, is what the images are saying. I don't know how literally to take all those, Uh, but what it says in verse 7, when they finish their testimony, I love that, as long as you're around, you aren't finished, your testimony is not done. But when you finish your testimony, guess what happens? You die and your life's over. But here we say that when they finish their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war on them, conquer them and kill them. So now is the first time we meet this cryptic character called the beast. We'll get more to him later in Revelation. But just suffice to say, this is not your friend. This is the beast stands for those powers on earth and perhaps one capital A Antichrist, but a lot of little A Antichrist, just anti-Christian opposition that comes out from the pit of hell and just comes against these witnesses. And again, last, last days, but the principles apply to now. There's always a spiritual warfare that's happening, right? And he comes against them, makes war on them, and kills them. Their bodies will lie in the main street of the great city, which figuratively have called Sodom and Egypt, where the Lord also was crucified. This great city which it's hard to know exactly here, come to digging deeper. deeper. But the great city is any place people who rebel against God and who mistreat the people of God. In their day, this certainly in, refers to the Roman Empire. Also here, I think, to Jerusalem as an example, because that's where Jesus was ultimately hated and killed. And some of the tr- people's tribes, languages, and nations, verse 9, will view their bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their bodies to be put into a tomb So that's the ultimate indignity in the ancient world, not allowing your your person to be buried. And it's the ultimate uh, insult to the, the witnesses of Jesus. And those who live on the earth will gloat over them and celebrate and send gifts to one another. It's like the Satan's Christmas. It's like horrible because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. It doesn't refer to them torturing people. It's they tormented them. What What? was what, what he mean? It means the prophets told them the truth. They told them the sweet stuff, but they also told them the bitter stuff. And the world didn't want to hear it. Nah, we don't want to hear it. You're, you're hurting our ears. The folks sometimes, have you ever had this happen? When you say something fairly innocent, but maybe it's got a little bit of truth that might just sting just a tiny, tiny bit. And somebody out there is just totally triggered. Even microaggressions send these people into orbit. Of pain, complain, and migraine. You're killing us. You're tormenting us. Stop. Be quiet. And finally when the beast kills them, they're they're quiet. And now it's time for a party. They, They send gifts to each other. They celebrate in the streets. So when they die, it sets off the biggest, baddest, most sinister celebration you've ever seen. And they borrow all the best music in your face tunes and celebration tunes. And they sing them. Na, 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 na. Na, 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 hey, 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 goodbye. They're so glad for those prophets to be gone. We will, we will rock you, yeah. Hit the road, Jack, and don't you come back no more, no more. All the songs they're singing, ding dong, the witch is dead, right? Now that the prophets are dead, these wrong way evil folks are singing. I got my hands up, I'm playing my song, I know I'm going to be okay. Yeah, it's party in the USA. And they're just partying in the streets because the prophets are dead. They've killed the witnesses. But guess what? The festivities get cut short. And the block parties are turned off because the news of their complete demise was exaggerated. Read on, verse 11. But after three and a half days, very short time the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet. Great fear fell on those who saw them. The party from hell is over. They rise from the dead. Verse 12, then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. They went up from heaven in a cloud while their enemies watched them. Now I think these verses are describing a future event. I don't know how in totally literally to take these or how symbolically to take them, okay? So we'll figure that out as we go, all right? But the biblical principle for us is that spiritual warfare is going to happen. We're going to have an opportunity to speak, and sometimes people are going to come against us. And in this world, sometimes they'll even kill Christians, which is what our brothers and sisters all over the globe are experiencing on a daily basis. But God has a way of rising up the church again, of raising it up, of raising up his witnesses, and ultimately, even though we die, yet we shall live because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Ultimately, in eternity, there's a day coming when he raises us all from the dead. So yeah, there's some events it's talking about here, but there's a truth, a theological truth that God always has the last word. How do the few influence the many? It's principle number four. We live our lives as witnesses, but then the way that the witness most makes an impact is when we suffer, die, die. And rise like Jesus did. In other words, as you heard the vision that was recounted to us, did it sound vaguely familiar of someone we've met before in the pages of Scripture? Somebody who went forth, taught the truth, eventually suffered, died, and then rose again? Does that sound like anybody? Yeah, it's Jesus. And if it doesn't sound like anybody that maybe in the early church, yeah. All the apostles and the martyrs, I mean, they, they all have this experience. And in the early church history, in the days of Revelation, yeah, you've got people who are martyred for the faith, but they won the ultimate victory. It, this is what the book of Revelation means when it says, they conquered by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. We suffer, die, and rise like Jesus. In around 200 AD, there was a, a, a Christian leader named Tertullian. And as Christians were falling to martyrdom left and right, and the empire says, we are winning, he said, no, you're not. Because the church was just growing by leaps and bounds. The truth of Jesus and his love could not be contained. It was just spreading. And here's what Tertullian said. He said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. As you kill us, it just causes us to grow even more. This is a hard truth for a Western culture and society that's used to being protected and not having to pay the ultimate price. But it's a truth nonetheless, that oftentimes the gospel moves forward most rapidly and most um, forcefully, not when the church has favored status, but when the church has not favored status, when it's persecuted, when it's difficult, that's when the gospel goes forward. And this truly is the life of every believer Whoever makes a difference. Not that we're all martyrs, but we shine, we testify, we witness, we love people, we love our neighbors, we forgive, we love everybody, we show them and we testify to the whole truth of God and we tell the story of Jesus and we call people to faith and to repentance. And sometimes we suffer and sometimes it feels like it's killing us and sometimes it actually, it does kill us. But God raises us up again and again and again and will raise us up on the last day. We live, we suffer, we die, we rise. Paul said on one occasion, I die daily. That's what Jesus said. Take up your cross and follow me. And finally, one day after a life of following Jesus, he calls us home as well and says, come up here. Come up here, son. Come up here, daughter of God. In your life has made a difference and he says well done good and faithful servant let's listen to the last scene for today scene five
1: at that moment a violent earthquake took place a tenth of the city fell and seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the god of heaven
0: so after this miraculous Incredible death, resurrection, ascension, scene, whatever that means, symbolically or literally. It says here another symbolic vision. At that moment, a violent earthquake took place. A tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. Survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. When those martyrs die, in the future and in our days, but the movement goes forward. It rises again and again and again. There will be many who are moved to give glory to the God of heaven. It's a chaotic scene. But interesting, it sounds like punishment. Actually, it's mercy. Because these numbers all come from the Old Testament. Only they're reversed in the New. So in the Old, one-tenth of the city remains. 90% has been destroyed. Here, only one-tenth is destroyed. 90% remains. In the Old, only 7,000 survive. Here, only 7,000 are lost. 10%. There's 63,000 that are alive. That's what it's saying. So 90% are shown mercy. And the faithful witnesses of, of believers in the midst of all this causes these 90%, some of them anyway, to finally wake up. And it shakes them to the core of their being. And finally, it says they gave glory to the God of heaven. Some people say this isn't real faith and repentance. It's just, you know, they're like, okay, we're serious about God. But every other time this phrase is used in Revelation, it's talking about worship it's talking about giving glory to the god of heaven so there's something that's going on in hearts and thousands upon thousands upon thousands trust in god and give glory to god it's a remarkable spiritual revival and that's what can happen when believers are willing to lay down their lives when the few say you know what i'm going to be faithful even when it's hard other people see that and it makes a difference this isn't just for the end times guys the last, last days. It happens repeatedly throughout the history of the world and the history of the church. The faithful witness of the few in the hard times ignites spiritual revival among the many who are looking on. And they give glory to God in heaven. Are you willing, if you really want to make a difference, are you willing to be the one who puts yourself out there, who bravely serves, who trusts in a God who's totally in control, who says, supply me with your power, Holy Spirit, and you're willing to tell the whole message and just live a life of integrity and wholeness and goodness before our neighbors and really love even our enemies, he says, principle number five, we can expect that God will move in many hearts. We pray for that, we hope for that, and we live our lives for that, that God is somehow going to ignite a spiritual revival in our city and in our nation. And in our world, can we pray and live toward that end? Because it can make an incredible difference. Guys, I want to tell you one last story as we close. And it's from 400 years after the time of Jesus. The gospel has begun to spread throughout the empire. But there's something going on at the Colosseum in Rome. And it's an incredible story. About 400 AD. Check out this story. In the 4th century, there lived a monk. Chuck Colson tells this story who had spent most of his life in a remote community of prayer, raising vegetables for the cloister kitchen. And one day, this monk named Telemachus felt that the Lord wanted him to go to Rome, the capital of the world. Telemachus had no idea why he would go there, why he should go there. He was terrified of the thought of it. But he prayed, and God's directive became clear. Here, how the bewildered little monk must have felt as he set out on his long journey on foot, everything he owned on his back. Where was he going? He didn't know. What would he find there? He had no idea, but obediently, he went. Telemachus arrived in Rome during a holiday festival. The Roman rulers kept the ghettos quiet in those days by providing free bread and special entertainment called circuses. And at the time that Telemachus arrived, the city was also bustling with excitement about the recent Roman victory over the Goths. And in the midst of this jubilant commotion, the monk looked for the clues as to why God had brought him there to Rome. Perhaps he thought it is not Sheer coincidence that I have arrived at this festival time. Perhaps God has some special role for me to play. So Telemachus let the crowds guide him, and the stream of humanity soon led him into the Colosseum, where the gladiatorial contests were to be staged. He could hear the clamor of the contestants preparing to do battle. The gladiators marched into the arena, saluted the emperor, and shouted, we who are about to die salute you. Telemachus had shuddered. He'd never heard of gladiatorial games before, but he had a premonition of awful violence. The crowd had come to cheer men who, for no other reason than amusement, would murder each other. Human lives are being offered for entertainment. And the monk realized that what was going to happen, he realized he could not sit still and watch such savagery. Neither could he leave and forget. He jumped to the top of the perimeter wall and cried out, In the name of Christ, stop it! The fighting began, of course. No one paid the slightest heed. To the puny voice. So Telemachus pattered down the steps and leaped onto the sandy floor of the arena. He made a comic figure, the scrawny little man in a monk's habit, dashing back and forth between the muscular armed athletes. One gladiator sent him sprawling with a blow from his shield, directing him back to his seat. It was a rough gesture, though almost a kind one. The crowd roared, but Telemachus refused to stop. He rushed into the way of those trying to fight, shouting again, in the name of Christ, stop it. The crowd began to laugh and cheer him on, perhaps thinking he was part of the entertainment. Then his movement blocked the vision of one of the contestants. And the gladiator saw a blow coming just in time. Furious now, the crowd began to cry for this interloper's blood. Running through, running through, they screamed. The gladiator he had blocked raised his sword and struck Telemachus slashing down across his chest and into his stomach. And the little monk gasped once more, in the name of Christ, stop it. And then a strange thing occurred. As the two gladiators and the crowd focused on the still form on the suddenly crimson sand, the arena grew deathly quiet. In a silence, someone in the top tier got up and walked out. Another followed, and all over the arena, spectators began to leave until a huge stadium was emptied. There were other forces at work, of course, but that innocent figure lying in the pool of blood crystallized the opposition, and that was the last gladiatorial competition ever staged in Roman Colosseum. Never again did men kill each other for the crowd's entertainment in the Roman arena, for the power of the Lamb of God had prevailed. Over and over again, the few influence the many. And the question is today, are you willing to be one of the few? Father in heaven, thank you for today. Thank you for the cross, the power of the lamb of God in our lives. And we wanna follow in his steps, giving our lives over for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of others, even for the sake of our enemies. And Lord, when we feel outnumbered, when hardships come, when difficulties come our way, help us to stand firm, to trust in you, to look beyond ourselves, to be faithful, even in our fears, to say fear doesn't have the final word, but you do, Lord God. Thank you for that. And we can't wait to see the spiritual renewal you spark in our hearts first, and then the revival that you bring in our places next. We ask this with confidence and faith in the name of Jesus. And everybody agreed and said, amen, amen. Hey, guys, thanks for joining us. God bless you all.